Warning! The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're going to continue the discussion that we've been having about metabolism and uh, today looking at protein and the need for protein within the diet, what protein does, what protein doesn't do, and we'll answer a couple of questions about uh, protein supplementation, hopefully going to dispel some myths and misconceptions that we might have about the amount of protein that we might need within our diet, or if there's such a thing as too much protein within our diet. So what are some of the misleading ideas that we might have about protein? So there's some common criticisms that we have about how much protein intake is necessary and what happens if we have too much protein in our diet. One of those misconceptions is that excessive consumption is gonna be detrimental to bone and renal functions. We also have some uh, common, criticisms, common criticisms about the source that we have for our proteins, where animal sources tend to lead to uh, low-grade inflammation, cardiometabolic or cardiovascular diseases, and increase cancer risks. And some of these may be true, some of those may not be true, and we'll take a look at that as we go through today. And then we have this kind of need that we want in order to label specific things in terms of their benefit or their detriment to uh, our health based off of where the protein is coming from or the specific type of protein we might have uh, within the diet. And this is where we get the ascribing of proteins being animal, dairy, or plant-based. And what we do is we have this kind of conception as to what we have in terms of what's healthy and what's not healthy. And then lastly, we have this idea that we need to have an increased amount of protein in our diet simply to cause muscles to grow and to and have uh, greater uh, mass of muscle and bone within the body without looking at the other factors that come into play as it relates to training leading to muscle growth, such as training volume, that is the set and rep, as well as the intensity or the amount of resistance that we're going to be working against. So when we start looking at this idea about protein in the diet, we have a few things we have to, we have to look at. So what's necessary to know? And what's necessary to know is, does it matter what source my protein is coming from? What are the proteins necessary for? And does it matter when I'm going to consume that protein or how I'm going to consume that protein? So what do we need to get from proteins? What's the purpose of having proteins in the diet? Well, we're going to get this wonderful molecule from the proteins known as an amino acid. And the amino acids are molecules that have an amine group that is an NH2, two hydrogens, one nitrogen, a carboxyl group, a COOH group, and then a functional group, which we reference as an R group in chemistry. And there's going to be surrounded by a central carbon atom. And what ends up happening is that we're going to get those amino acids by breaking apart proteins. And so we have these consumed proteins, these functional large proteins, and the broken up various parts of those large proteins into their individual amino acid components, where we take the big proteins and break them into dipeptides, that's two amino acids put together. And then we end up absorbing the individual amino acids within the proteins. 
So we're not actually going to be absorbing the protein itself. What we're going to be doing is absorbing the amino acids within the proteins based off of the digestion that is taking place. Every protein that we consume is going to go through this process of being broken down in its components from the big proteins into smaller bits of the protein, into the amino acid chains, and then eventually into the dipeptides, the two amino acids put together, and then finally into the individual amino acids. Those individual amino acids is what we're actually getting from the protein that we have in our diet. And when we talk about the different types of proteins, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about things like essential and non-essential amino acids, things that we have to consume in our diet versus things that we don't necessarily have to consume in our diet. And so what are some of those essential and non-essential amino acids? Well, some of the essential and non-essential amino acids are gonna be things like essential amino acids, histidine, isoleucine, leucine, lysine, threonine, tryptophan, valine, non-essential amino acids such as alanine, asparagine, aspartate, cysteine, glutamate, glutamine, glycine, proline, serine, tyrosine. And then we have three amino acids that aren't quite essential, but we don't necessarily make, them, make enough of them. So we have to consume enough so that we have enough of them. Those include arginine, methionine, and phenylalanine. So once we start looking at that in terms of the dietary nature of amino acids, we also are gonna have to look at in terms of the structure of the amino acids. This is where we have what are referred to as the branched chain versus the non-branched chain. The branched chain amino acids are going to have the functional groups have small little chemical branches within them instead of being a nice straight linear line. And so if we look at our amino acid structures, these include things like isoleucine, leucine, and valine, where we have branches or side chains coming off of the central R groups within the amino acid. Based off of the type of amino acid, we're going to have distinct needs metabolically for, for them. But what are the amino acids going to be used for? What's the purpose of having amino acids and having proteins within our diet? And this is where we have to look at, okay, what are the fates? What are the metabolic results that come about from having amino acids available to us or having amino acids being built by the various cells within our body. Well, amino acids are going to be used to build proteins. They are going to be converted into other nitrogen-containing components or compounds, things like niacin. Some of the vitamins will have amino acids within them. They'll be converted into hormones and into neurotransmitters, such as serotonin, catecholamines, growth hormone, insulin. Within some cells, and in particular within the liver, we can get these amino acids to be converted into other amino acids through processes of transamination. And that's where we're going to change distinct chemicals by moving amines around in order to make additional amino acids. 
some of these amino acids can form glucose metabolites, chemicals that come from the breakdown of glucose or can build into glucose. And from those metabolites, we can actually make new glucose in our body, particularly within the liver and to a lesser extent within the kidneys through a process known as gluconeogenesis. Where we're gonna take that glucose metabolite, we're going to do some chemical reactions on it. And the end product of those chemical reactions is a new molecule of glucose that we can use for uh, metabolic purposes. Or we can take those same glucose metabolites, and in some, some cases, other types of metabolites known as, as ketone metabolites, and we can convert them into sugars that are gonna be used within the energy pathways, in particular, within the Krebs cycle, within the mitochondria to allow for continuous generation of ATP. And then some of the amino acids will be converted into ketone bodies, which are important because we can use those ketone bodies to produce other metabolites necessary for ATP regeneration, acetyl-CoA. And so when you talk about or hear about people on a low carbohydrate, high protein diet, one of the ways that they can go about getting the molecules necessary for making ATP is to take these amino acids that can make into can be made into glucose through converting into glucose metabolites and then through gluconeogenesis into glucose, or they can make ketone bodies that will allow be allowed that will allow for the continuation of ATP processing within the body. Going to that first point about the amino acids in terms of building proteins, well, what's the proteins you're gonna be used for? Well, proteins are gonna be necessary in order to build cells. Cells are supported by what's referred to as a cytoskeleton. Cytoskeletons, cyto is cell, are the cellular structures, in particular protein structures, that are going to maintain the structure, the, the, the shape of that cell. It's also gonna allow for that cell to grow. It's also gonna allow for that cell to change its shape in order to be able to maintain its homeostasis. There are some cells that are gonna be using these proteins in order to make enzymes. And in particular, we're gonna need a lot of digestive enzymes coming from the cells within our intestines, as well as cells within our pancreas, as well as cells within our gallbladder and within our, our liver that are necessary to break down all of the materials that we normally consume in our diets, we have the nutrients necessary in order to build this, the, the tissues of the body. Our immune cells are going to use proteins in order to make wonderful things called antibodies, which are necessary for us to have a proper immune response to anything that is infecting us. Now, for most of what we talk about in terms of proteins, we should talk about in terms of these next three points, which is building muscle tissue, in particular skeletal muscle tissue, both the contractile tissue, the contractile proteins, actin and myosin, as well as all of the structural and regulatory proteins that we see within the muscle that allows for the muscle to function. But we also need these proteins in order to maintain the connective tissues, bones, ligaments, tendons that support the muscles in their ability to move the body around or to maintain normal body posture. But then we also have things like hair and nails that come from the proteins that we consume in our diet 
which is where one of the things you can do in terms of looking at, am I getting enough protein in my diet or am I getting the correct types of protein in my diet is to look at how well is your hair growing? How well are your nails growing? And do I see any type of discoloration or disfiguration within the hair and nails that might indicate not getting enough protein within the diet? So speaking about how much protein I should have in my diet, what are the guidelines we have for consumption? Well, those guidelines are based off of two key factors here. One is the age that we're looking at, and the other one is the level of physical activity. Age and physical activity are going to be the two dependent factors that we have in terms of our protein requirements. I'm going to be giving this to you in terms of grams per kilogram. Easy conversion here is to divide those numbers in about half to get it to grams per pound, which is how people in the United States are usually talk about in terms of mass units. However, most of the rest of the world, as well as us in the science world, we'll be talking about this in terms of grams per kilogram. For the average person, it's going to be between 0.8 and 2.0 grams per kilogram of body mass. If we break this down in terms of age dependencies, infants less than four months old need to be, be between 1.4 and 2.5 grams per kilogram of body mass. Infants between four and 12 months will be between one and 1.3 grams per kilogram. Children and adolescents are going to start getting into that quote-unquote average range now of somewhere between about 0.8 to about 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilogram body mass. Now, all of these numbers are going to be varying based off of growth that takes place within the individual, where during growth phases, we're going to need slightly more protein than when we're not in growth phases. Now, the other thing we have to remember about everybody within this age range is that their metabolism is set up based off of a carbohydrate-based metabolism. They're going to be using a lot of their carbohydrates to meet their energy demands, where they're going to be using a lot of the lipids and a lot of the proteins to go about doing the growth that takes place during these timeframes. Once we've exited adolescence, we're now in adulthood. And adulthood is going to vary based off of the age. Now, notice as we get older, as we get into the, the old age, put quotes around old age, because that's kind of a subjective measurement here, greater than 65 years of age, we're going to be back up towards what we had in the infancy in terms of the requirements for protein. And that's not because we're growing, but because we're trying to maintain, we're trying to re retain proteins that are being broken down due to inflammation signals, signals that are coming from hormones that are in existence because we have a lot of inflammation taking place because we have a lot of tissue breakdown occurring that simply happens because of old age. Whereas in the adult, we're between about 0.8 and 1.2 to 1.3. Now, if we are pregnant or if we are lactating, those needs are gonna, are going to increase because we are now have to compensate for things that the fetus is going to need during pregnancy or things that the infant's going to need during lactation. We can dig a little bit more into this. And a lot of what we're going to see here in the ranges in terms of uh, diet as relates to diet, I mean, dietary protein as relates to uh, activity as well as to attempting to do weight loss is an indication that we have metabolic responses to exercise and nutritional status that's going to indicate the need to have additional protein 
in order to allow for muscle growth and or maintenance. So if we look at normal needs, normal needs for proteins can be based off of needs for nitrogen in order to keep nitrogen balance stable. We need nitrogen to be stable so we can build our nitrogen-containing compounds as well as maintain the proteins and within the tissues so that we're able to keep skeletal muscle, skeleton, and other high-protein tissues intact. In order to meet our sulfur needs, we're going to need about 14 milligrams per kilograms of methionine and cysteine. Now, we talked about those branched-chain amino acids. We have a range of between 5 and 20 grams of branched-chain amino acids necessary in a day, and these are maximums. If we're in the gym or if we're listening to a lot of the discussion about muscle health and muscle function, there's a lot of talk about uh, creatine and the need for creatine. We do need creatine. However, we don't need as much creatine as what a lot of people might advertise. We only need between about three and six grams of creatine in a day. Now, if I am more active, I'm going to need more. If I'm less active, I'm going to be needing towards the bottom end of that range. For exercisers, these numbers are going to change a little bit. For endurance exercisers, I'm going to need between 1.2 and 2 grams per kilogram of body mass. For resistance exercisers, I'm going to need between 1.6 and 1.8 grams per kilogram of body mass. We'll get a little more detail into these numbers and how these numbers are going to vary in a couple minutes here. Along with increasing the need for protein, we're also going to need an increase in creatine for these individuals. So if I'm doing a lot of endurance exercise, if I'm doing a lot of resistance exercise, I'm going to be metabolizing a lot of the creatine within the cells of the, of the muscles. And because I'm going to be metabolizing a lot of the creatine within the cells of the muscles, I have to replace that creatine which means that instead of going three to six grams, I may need between five and 12 grams of creatine in a day. That branching amino acid maximum isn't gonna change very much for the exercisers as long as I'm meeting all of the other needs for uh, energetic purposes because a lot of the branching amino acids are ones that we'll be utilizing for some energetic purposes as we go through. Now, there's two different cases that we have as as relates to weight changes for the weight gainers i need to have between 1.1 and 2.5 grams per kilogram body mass very similar to what we see with the exercisers now there's no additional benefit that we get if we go above 2.5 you may continue to have muscle growth that takes place but the additional protein is not the actual trigger for the additional growth in muscle. What's the trigger for the additional growth of muscle is the fact that I'm stimulating the muscle at an appropriate level to get the muscle to grow. For the weight loss, I need to be between, between about 1.8 and 2.7 grams per kilogram of body mass so that when I do weight loss, that weight loss is going to be in the fat mass and not in the fat-free mass, 
which is very important because hormonally speaking, fat-free mass is a better mass to have on the body than fat mass. And that's because fat mass is going to send out signals that cause all of the health issues that we associate with overfatness, whereas fat-free mass is going to help reverse a lot of the health issues that we see with excessive fat mass. And so when I'm trying to lose weight, I can assist the weight loss I'm getting from exercise by actually increasing the amount of uh, protein I have in my diet so that I'm able to gain the correct weight loss within the weight loss program where I'm losing the fat mass, but not losing the fat free or the muscle mass. So we have these ranges, but there's a couple of things we have to look at here. First, we have to look at is how much is too much. And this is where we have a couple of fallacies in some of the recommendations that, we that, we're, that we're giving to individuals as it relates to how much protein they have in their diet. One of the things we have to remember here is that unlike the other nutrients that we consume, carbohydrates and lipids in particular, we do not store excessive amino acids. So if I'm over-consuming amino acids, all of the excess amino acids that's being absorbed will simply be excreted and not metabolized. The metabolism of amino acids is going to lead to an increase of urea, uric acid, ammonia, and ammonium based off of how metabolism is taking place. That increase led to a old postulate that we were overstressing kidneys when we have higher intakes of protein. But what we've seen within the preponderance of the evidence, within all of the evidence that we have available to us, is that increased protein within the diet, as long as I don't have any other kidney issues to worry about, and as long as I'm normally hydrated, does not overstress the kidney. We also used to think that because we have all these excessive acids coming in through absorption of the amino acids, we're going to have an increased acidotic state. We can also see an increase in acids within the body based off of metabolism of the amino acids into their metabolites. One of the ways in which we can buffer those acids is through use of materials found within bones, phosphates in particular. And one of the things that used to be seen without looking at any other evidence is alterations in calcium within the blood, which is usually an indication of having low bone mineral density. But what we actually see is that people who have high protein intake do not have reduced bone mineral density, low bone mass. They actually have very high bone mass or can have very high bone mass, which means that the evidence to support as the acidic nature of protein intake does not support the low bone mineral density that we used to that we used to attribute protein intake to so what are safe ranges for consumption well you can consume up to three to five grams per kilogram body mass 
that three to five grams per kilogram of body mass has been shown to be safe for most individuals. Once again, remember we have all these other health issues we have to worry about. Has been shown to be safe and has been shown to assist with hypertrophication, growth of muscle tissue in heavy resistance exercisers. But once again, we can't separate in between, is it the protein or is it the heavy resistance exercise? The other idea that comes about in terms of how much is too much is how much should I have per meal? And this is where we get this idea of 20 to 40 grams per meal or about 0.4 grams per kilogram per meal as the maximum amount that I should be eating in every meal. Now, this isn't based off of digestion and absorption of proteins because those numbers are simply around one and a half ounces of protein. If we look at the 20 to 40 grams, that one and a half ounce of proteins is about one-tenth of a pound, if we think about it in terms of how many ounces are in a pound. And so it's not really about how much is being digested and absorbed because we can digest and absorb a, a lot of protein. What we're making those measurements on is what is the maximum protein synthesis rate and what is the rate at which I'm clearing excessive amino acids from the blood at the kidneys. So these maximums within the meals is not necessarily based off of how much can I actually use and what's safe for me to eat. It's more about how much am I seeing in terms of being automatically produces waste product. But what we have to remember is that if I am more metabolically active, I'm going to be using more of those amino acids. And so I may need more protein, more amino acids coming in than that 1.5 ounce per meal that is the recommendation. The other thing we have to look at in terms of how much is too much is the form in which the protein is coming in, in terms of is it coming in in liquid form, such as a protein shake, or is it something that I'm eating in terms of quote unquote real food? So when should we be consuming this protein for exercising? So we talked about needing more protein when I'm exercising. Here's the thing, regardless of what people are saying, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you're consuming that protein as long as you're meeting your requirements for the day. People talk about having the anabolic window. Most of the growth and most of the repair that we're gonna be looking at coming from exercise is not coming during the daytime, but it's coming during the rest time. And that's because the hormones that are gonna be stimulating the growth of the tissues is coming about later in the day. We may see some uh, spikes in androgens, testosterone, adrenal androgen, within the exercise or right after the exercise, but that is more of a protective effect than a growth effect. The other thing that's happening immediately after, immediately after exercise is that we have all of these amino acids that are now freed from all of the proteins that have been broken down during the exercise that are available for us to go about using. Now, 
there is evidence to support the consumption of protein with carbohydrate or a carbohydrate-like substance post-exercise, but that's more about limiting cortisol and glucagon responses than it is about actually allowing for muscles to grow because what cortisol and glucagon do is it starts to break down tissues. And what we're attempting to do here is we're attempting to maximize the likelihood of growing tissues. And so by consuming the protein or the carbohydrate substance after exercise, what we're able to do is we're able to put ourselves into the best window to have growth as long as we're going to meet the protein requirements throughout the rest of the day. Where should we be getting our proteins? And this is one of the quote-unquote hot button topics in terms of should I be getting plant proteins or should I be eating animal proteins? And this is where we have to watch out for all of the, the jargons and the marketing ploys that are out there. Is there a difference between animal and plant proteins? And this is where I like to throw out the, the comment, yes, but no. It doesn't matter the source. A protein is a protein is a protein is a protein. And an amino acid is an amino acid is an amino acid is an amino acid. The body can't tell the difference in terms of where did that protein come from? Now we have a caveat on that. If I'm going to be solely using plant sources for my proteins, I need to make sure that I'm combining distinct complementary foods so as to develop complete proteins to, to obtain all of the essential amino acids. Without those complete proteins, without those complementary foods, I do not get all of the essential amino acids which is where we have to be careful because meat avoidance can lead to malnutrition and nutrient deficits. In particular, B vitamins, and in particular, B12, which is necessary for making of red blood cells, as well as other metabolic functions. We may also have things like iron deficiency coming into play, from people who avoid meat. In order to meet the creatine needs, avoiding meat can also put me into a creatine deficit. Is there a difference between drinking proteins and eating proteins? And once again, we have that wonderful comment of yes, but no. It doesn't matter the source of the protein. And a protein is a protein is a protein is a protein. An amino acid is an amino acid is an amino acid is an amino acid. There may be a difference in terms of how quickly is that protein and that amino acid available based off of its digestion, because if I'm drinking it, it's already in a simpler form. It's already been broken down into its uh, dipeptide, into its two amino acid components, or into a smaller peptide chain, or it's in its individual amino acid component. Now, the problem is, is that if I am going to solely use those drinks, I might have malnutrition and or nutrient deficiency coming into play because I'm missing on all of the other nutrients that come in from eating that meal that has protein within it, which is why most of the protein drinks that are out there are referenced as supplements. And the reason why we're referencing them as supplements is because we don't intend them to be a meal in itself. The other thing that people uh, start discussing is, is there a better type of protein drink? And what the evidence shows is that protein blends 
are better than isolated solutions in terms of allowing for muscle growth, as well as if I'm using the protein drinks as a replacement for a specific meal in a weight loss program. Speaking of those drinks, do we need to supplement? And once again, we go back to this idea about the need for additional protein, and that depends on the metabolic responses to exercise and nutritional status, which is going to be key to meeting the additional protein consumption to allow for growth of muscles or maintenance of fat-free mass. There is some evidence for needing to consume higher levels of protein when exercise is at lower resistance or is done for prolonged duration. Due to metabolic signals, what ends up happening is that we send distinct hormones out into circulation that lead to breakdown of proteins when we have very low stress levels in exercise or where exercise is for long durations. Those hormone signals will start to break down proteins and will delay the rate at which I can get proteins back, which means that if I'm going to be doing endurance exercise, Supplementing with protein after the exercise session is of benefit. Not necessarily the same case for resistance exercise, even though we don't usually talk about it in that manner. There's evidence to support protein supplementation when dieting and exercising to obtain a body compositional change if I'm going to consume less total food. And this note goes back to the infancy and the growth phases that we saw in infants and in children and adolescents. If I'm cutting back on food that I'm consuming, I have to somehow get the nutrients my body needs from somewhere, which means my body's going to start to break down all of the stores that I happen to have. If I'm able to give myself additional protein during this breakdown phase, I'm going to be utilizing other stores, in particular adipose tissue, to provide lipids for energy purposes. And I'm not going to be breaking down a large amount of my skeletal muscle and my bone as I am undergoing weight loss because I'm going to be using the other tissues to meet energy demands while I'm getting the additional protein necessary to keep protein synthesis, the making of proteins, high enough to meet the needs for the body so that when I am undergoing weight loss, that weight loss is going to come from the fat mass and not from the fat-free mass. There is some evidence to support the use of casein, the protein coming from milk, at night, particularly if I'm going to want to see muscle growth and musculoskeletal growth, growth of muscle, bone, ligaments, tendons, coming from the resistance exercise that I'm doing. This is a correlative effect, meaning we have a positive effect. I have not seen anything that is causally related to consumption of casein. So what's the take-home message? How should I look at protein in my diet? Consuming protein is necessary for normal metabolism and tissue growth or tissue maintenance. Without any pre-existing condition, excessive consumption of proteins is not detrimental to renal functions. The association of animal source proteins leading to low-grade inflammation, cardiometabolic diseases, cardiovascular diseases, and cancers are misleading and antithetical to scientific understanding. There is some evidence to support cancer risk, particular intestinal cancer risk, to consumption of animal proteins. That tends to be more linked with the cooking process than the animal protein itself. 
And what happens to some of the nitrogen bearing molecules within the proteins when they're exposed to high heat causing carcinogenic molecules? There is some evidence to support consumption of animal proteins and atherosclerosis, hardening the quotes around that, of the arteries. But the problem with that association is that it's not necessarily the meat or the protein that's coming into play, but increased amounts of saturated fat, as well as immune triggers from antigen markers that are being absorbed with the proteins and the fats that are causing an immune response within the arteries, leading to atherosclerosis. There's very little evidence to support low-grade inflammation coming from animal protein consumption outside of that antigen-inducing response that we see and it's not with all sources of protein. It's incorrect to ascribe distinct health detriment or benefit given to a specific protein or source of protein without also ascribing benefit or detriment to the rest of the protein source, the food that the protein source is coming from, or the overall diet and physical activity pattern of the individual. Increased protein consumption by itself does not directly cause hypertrophication growth within the skeletal muscle and skeleton and tendons and ligaments of the musculoskeletal system. We do need increased protein during the times following exercise in order to allow for growth to take place. However, these do not happen independent of training volume, set and rep, and intensity levels where if I'm not exercising at a intensity level, the amount of resistance, and a training volume set rep combination to cause muscle growth, I'm not gonna get muscle growth. And this goes into all of the periodization stuff that we uh, referenced earlier in our talk and is available in, on the Substack, for those of you who are reading the Substack, and I will put up a podcast shortly as it relates to how do I actually periodize for proper muscle growth, maintenance, and or weight loss. There's a lot of other things to look at when it comes to protein and protein in the diet, particularly as it relates to some of the other additives that we might have within the proteins. We'll be discussing those issues in another podcast as it relates to hormones that we might see in foods as well as some of the nitrate and nitrogenous molecules that we see in proteins. But thanks for listening. Hopefully raise some uh, valid points for you to take with you. Hopefully you came, came away with a few more questions that you might want to ask. And please stay tuned for more discussions on the topic of metabolism, health, and human physiology.